welcome to the new season of Parallel Justice, brought to you by the National Crime Victim Bar Association and the National Center for Victims of Crime. I'm Renee Williams, your host for this series. This season, we will dive into the realities of our criminal justice system through exclusive interviews with expert attorneys who took on cases that dominated headlines. We will investigate civil justice sought for criminal acts and examine the ways that the civil justice system has forced change and made society safer. The topics we discuss may be disturbing and they are intended for adult audiences only. Some of these topics are triggering and we encourage you to practice good self-care and seek support. Confidential, compassionate support is available at victimconnect.org. The views expressed in the following podcast are those of our guests who are experts in these areas. Their opinions are invaluable. However, they do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Center. We acknowledge that even though these views may be controversial, we know silence, especially on tough issues, only enables wrongdoers and perpetuates abuse. Our goal in these discussions is to bring these issues to light and make victims aware of the systems available to them. Please enjoy the podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Parallel Justice. I'm your host, Renee Williams, and today we have a very special guest with us, We're doing something a little bit different on Parallel Justice today. I'm joined by one of my colleagues here at the National Center. Her name is Renee Stapp, um, and I'm going to let her introduce herself. Heshche Ishtango. My name is Renee Stapp. I'm a citizen of the Muscogee Nation of Oklahoma, uh, currently the director for the Victim Assistance to Support Tribes at the National Center, and um, somebody who worked directly um, with victims and agents and U.S. attorneys on the Dr. Stanley Weber case. And so as most of our listeners know, we're usually interviewing attorneys today, but this is our rare chance to actually get a good idea of what was happening when the crimes were being committed and what was going on in that community. Now, if you'll remember last week, we spoke to Peter Jancy about how he found civil justice for these victims, but this is such an important case and there's such a long history of abuse and taking advantage of natives that we wanted to make sure we explored the full scope of the case. So starting with that, Renee, what was your position when you when this this um, business of Dr. Weber came about? Um, I was a federal victim specialist with the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and my duty station was Pine Ridge, South Dakota. So that's where I lived and worked. And my job responsibilities were to provide um, direct support and service to victims of violent crime on the Pine Ridge Reservation, whether it be to support the FBI agents or our, we had seven, six BIA federal criminal investigators at the time. Now, I think it's really important for folks to understand before we get started, there are some jurisdictional idiosyncrasies whenever we're dealing with with this type of crime. So you said BIA, can you explain that and explain who does what when it comes to crimes on a reservation? So it's not technically reservation. So, um, and I know that that's most people's educational learning curve but um so i will refer to it as indian country and indian country is just that it's righteous indian country it's federal land held by the federal government that us as native americans are allowed air quotes to live on um 
However, the federal government still has jurisdiction over these lands. So the tribe and the federal government on Pine Ridge Reservation have concurrent jurisdiction. Um, and this is due to treaty and, like I said, the Major Crimes Act. So if there are major crimes such as um, sexual assault, homicide, arson, kidnapping, um, those crimes will fall to the federal government and to the tribe um, concurrently. So that could be the BIA, which is the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And the best way to describe that is I call that the Indian FBI. So it is the Native American um, under the United States Department of Interior. It is their Office of Justice Services, Law Enforcement Services um, under the Department of Interior, which you will see on many in many different areas of Indian country as the law enforcement response, and they work um, collectively with the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Okay, so this case definitely fell within major crimes. And you mentioned that you were on Pine Ridge Reservation at the time. That was, and correct me if I'm wrong, that's where Dr. Weber was finally stopped, right? And I believe it's where he started because he started there, if I'm memory serves me correctly, 1993 or four. When do you remember first hearing about this case and what were you hearing? So I believe and I have to give kudos to my colleagues um, who were responsible for bringing this to um, what we would term as justice. I don't call it justice um, for victims, but for this for this recording. Um, so uh, Agent Fred Bennett, he is a BIA criminal investigator, but he took a report about um, in the office with the agents. So of course he calls me and says, hey, I've got some victims here. Um, don't really know what's going on yet. We need to talk to them, um, need to come. And um, it just kind of unfolded from there. Uh, Fred started digging into you know, archives and release of information and getting subpoenas um, and started to uncover a pattern, not only of abuse, but a pattern of the federal government's um, response to victims who were reporting, or should I say the federal government's cover-up of that, I think that's more appropriate term because this had been reported numerous times and was swept under the rug, if you will. And unfortunately, that's something we're pretty used to in Indian country. So I'm going to credit, um, again, my colleagues, which is going to be Fred Bennett, um, Assistant U.S. Attorney Sarah Collins, Assistant U.S. Attorney Eric Kelderman. Um, they were pretty tenacious about providing justice and support to Pine Ridge while I was there. So I'm, I, I give most of the credit to Fred for seeing this through and not stopping and being tenacious and, you know, just caring about victims because he did care about victims. And I think that he saw the cover up before he even dove into the investigation. So this was like, this can't happen. Now, Given everything you said, um, what were the what did the efforts look like to identify victims? Was it a please come to us? Because right now, I believe he's been charged and convicted of, I think it's four to six children. Um, but we know in all of these cases, when when there's smoke, there's fire, and it's it's definitely more than those six. You know, people don't just stop. So. 
were there efforts to identify or to encourage folks to come forward? How is that kind of navigated in, in this very sensitive situation? So in mainstream media, and I'm just going to call it like it is. So in mainstream media, um, you know, you're going to have hotlines and, you know, we'll take the Catholic, you know, the Catholic churches, for example, you're going to have hotlines, you're going to have flyers, you're going to have boots on the ground people um, just there waiting. In Indian country, it's a lot different. The resources are not as accessible and they're not sent out um, like they would in mainstream media. So basically, it a lot of it was Fred hitting the ground. Um, I can't speak to, to the FBI side of it or even what happened in Montana, but I know that Fred worked, you know, both reservations. But um, I, I know that in Pine Ridge, it was basically Fred just door to door pulling records, trying to contact people, honoring, you know, honoring the space when people did not want him on their door for obvious reasons. Um, so, and that's generally how investigations are done in Indian country. We don't have the, we don't have the resources. I mean, and just to be quite honest with you, unless it's high profile, the media could care less about what happens in Indian country victimization. And we see that on a daily basis with like, you know, missing and murdered cases. Um, it's it's going to look a lot different for brown and red faces um, in Indian country as it would in mainstream media. So then let's talk about something else that's very different from mainstream um, Indian health services. Can you explain what that is and what they do and why do people, I, I don't want to say have to go to them, but it's, it's one of the few options. Can you walk us through that um, from a layman's perspective? Absolutely. So um, Indian Health Services, is it, it's a treaty obligation of the federal government to tribal nations, not just reservations. Like we have, you know, an Indian Health Services in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, um, because Oklahoma is the second largest native populated state in the nation. Um, and since the federal government took most of our land and our resources, this is their trust responsibility and treaty obligation as lined out in, in our treaties, um, the government to government relations that where the federal government said, we're going to give you, um, you know, healthcare, educational services, you know, et cetera, for the land and resources that we're going to take because we will profit from this land and these resources forever and ever and ever. Um, however, IHS um, is a very failed system. And I mean, I don't know how else to say it because I use IHS now. So I don't know how else to say it other than I, and this is no, no diss to the people that work there because I have great friends and colleagues who work for IHS, but also on um, in many of the places, it is ran by non-Native individuals that do not understand the cultural or historical concepts that happen in Indian country, and they cookie cut us for one thing. You know, there's 574 tribal nations in this country. Each one of us have our own history and our own specific treaty with the federal government. Um, so, We'll use IHS, Pine Ridge IHS. You know, I used their IHS for 
medical care the entire time I was there. Um, it is subpar. So Renee, you mentioned something interesting earlier, and it was that from boarding school abuse days, and some of our audience might not know about that. So I'm going to ask you to explain a little bit of that briefly, but how sexual abuse is taught and how it's become enmeshed in, in some of the lived experiences. So can you walk our listeners through, for those who don't know, what the boarding schools were about and how that's really changed the landscape for the community? What boarding schools were, um, and still are today, they're still in existence, uh, but I can't remember how many there were. There were hundreds everywhere. So basically, um, it was uh, kill the Indian, save the man mentality. And so children would be taken from their parents and put into boarding schools um, off the reservation and sent across the country. You know, they could have been sent to the East Coast. They could have been from the Great Plains, sent to Oklahoma. They could have been from Tennessee, sent to California, just wherever wherever they were put. And I think importantly, how did they find, how did the government find and identify these children? Well, we were all rounded. Yeah, we were all rounded up on reservations. So it nobody really cared, you know, I mean, nobody outside of Indian families. Um, and these children would be sent to my great, great, let's say my great grandmother and grandfather were boarding school survivors. So anybody you talk to that's native, they are either a survivor or they are a relative of a survivor of boarding school. That's just the way that it is. Um, these children would be sent to different boarding schools. Their hair would be cut, which is, that's a huge cultural part of Indian people. Their hair would be cut. There were, um, my grandma told me stories about her mom that they would put popsicle sticks in their mouth so that anytime they spoke their native language. Um, so they could only speak English. So they would literally beat the Indian out of them. Well, just like the Catholic schools, um, there was a ton of sexual abuse that went on in boarding schools, right? So you have all of these folks who are taken, these, these children who are taken from their families, sent to boarding school, beaten, abused, raped, um, just, you know, horrible treatment. And then when they become a certain age, they go back to the reservation. So they've had no sense of community, which that's what Indian people are all about is community. They have real, no real sense of community. They have no sense of love and affection. And when you're traumatized, I mean, I think we know now from the neurobiology of trauma and all the study that we do on trauma, um, you self-medicate, um, which led to very high cases of alcohol abuse in. Now, right now from Indian Health Services, only Dr. Weber has been accused. But we know whenever this happens, it's usually much, much deeper than that. What is the kind of the current state of what's going on there? Are people keeping a closer eye? Have we just forgotten about it? What's going on? Well, and that's another unfortunate thing in Indian country. The people who remember it and who keep a keen eye are the people who live there. Um, so, you know, how do you, how do you overcome a system that has failed you, you know, since inception, um, since treaty? How do you combat that? How do you expect a community that has no real 
you know, power of authority, how do you, how can you expect them to overcome this and combat that? I will say that Pine Ridge has some of the best SANE nurses and the sexual assault nurse examiner program that I've ever worked with in my entire career. Um, those ladies are phenomenal. Um, and I know that they do their due diligence to make sure that victims are supported and crimes are reported um, where it goes from there. And like I said, I've, I left in 2016. Um, I transferred to another duty station. So I don't really know. I know the BIA is not there any longer. It's now um, you have tribal agents. So it'll be the tribal agents and the FBI coordinating forces down there. Um, from what I hear, it's going fairly well, but I don't, I'm not there to you know, comment on what's happening now. But I do know that historically, the whole whistleblower protection that was put into place was really detrimental um, for that community because it was designed to help the people that covered it up. How do you think we fix this? Or how do we help prevent this in the long run? Well, I think one of the ways to prevent it is for the federal government to uphold their treaty obligation. Um, and also to give tribes more authority and more resources and access to services within their communities. So, um, you know, there needs to be, I mean, you know, money doesn't fix everything, but when we're talking about some of the poorest communities in our country um, and, you know, you can't provide basic needs, well, we need to look at that because the federal government is not upholding their their treaty obligation. If we could see the federal government treating our tribal leaders in the same capacity and upholding that um, federal trust responsibility, I think we could grow as tribal nations and we would be more empowered to assume some of these responsibilities and hold people more accountable. Okay, Renee, I just wanna go back to something we talked about earlier, uh, jurisdiction, because it's hard to understand in a regular court context, but there are layers here. So with IHS specifically, different folks could have responded to these complaints about Dr. Weber at any given time, depending on where he was. So can you kind of explain how jurisdiction works? Well, at least how it worked in this case. Well, jurisdiction is always the number one key when you're dealing with Indian country crime. Um, that's why it is a specialized area of law. Um, so if you think the civil part is crazy, uh, try being, you know, in the a first responder and maybe not having a clear picture and you're having to stand there with somebody and try to sort out who has this case. And by people who may not understand that, um, me as a native woman, that I am unique in the fact that I am a citizen of the United States of America, right? So I have a birth certificate. I am a citizen of the state of Oklahoma. I have a voter ID card and an Oklahoma driver's license, but I'm also a citizen of the Muscogee Nation. So I have a tribal enrollment card, but I also have what is called, and this is going to confuse everybody, but this is, it's by design to show you how convoluted jurisdiction is. Um, I have what's called a CDIB, a Certificate Degree of Indian Blood from the United States Department of Interior that says, this is how much Indian blood you are. And then I have a tribal enrollment 
that says you are an enrolled member of the Muscogee Nation, a federally recognized tribe. So this is what makes us so different. Uh, people always claim us as a race, but we're not a, I mean, we are a race, but we are a political affiliation to the federal government because you can take other races and they do not have that political affiliation to where the federal government tracks us by pedigree, if you will, right? So that when, if I am on my reservation and I am a victim of a crime, depending on what the crime is, let's say it's a major crime, so the tribal law enforcement, our Muscogee Light Horse Police Department could respond and assume, you know, jurisdiction of that crime, um, giving me resources through our tribal programs, offender, possibly, depending on their race, going through tribal court, but also the federal government could respond so that be the FBI um, would respond um, to my crime, and that may also go through federal court. And again, those can go through both courts. However, if my offender is non-native, depending on what the crime is, the tribe may not have jurisdiction. Now, does it matter where you are? In that it house? does matter. The, the land status yeah. is, is okay. all of us. So you have to identify the race, the land status, and the crime before we determine who is going to prosecute my is there a priority listing so of you have to check this box first and then this box and then this box or is it all three or do you know what i'm saying well i think the first thing is you have to justify um and i was a police officer in oklahoma so this is what i would do first of all i would determine my land status because Oklahoma is really crazy anyway. And with McGirt, now it's like changed and everybody's having to like change their mindset. So it's really out of control. Um, but you have to determine your land status of where you're at as a law enforcement officer, regardless. Even if you work in a county and you're responding in the city and then determining the crime, and this is not similar to Indian country, but it's just an example that I know that lay people may understand. Um, depending on that type of crime, let's say you take public intox, you might just want to charge it as a city crime and not fool with it, right? Because it's kind of a minor, it's a minor incident. Um, if you have a DUI, that's kind of amped up a little bit. We're looking at felony crime, possibly, so that we, as a county deputy, you may take that to the county. So it's the same in Indian country in aspects of you have to determine your jurisdiction. Do I have jurisdiction over this case? So you're going to determine your land status first. Then you'd have to determine your victim and your offender. So, so with IHS, Where does Dr. Weber finally fall? I mean, we can go, where did he fall when he was in Oklahoma? Where did he fall when he was, where did he fall when he was finally caught? Right. And he would fall in federal, federal jurisdiction um, because he's non-native, but he committed and he committed major crimes um, in Indian country against Indian children. So that's absolutely going to be federal jurisdiction. Now, if you had this happen, let's say in a big hospital in New York City, um, that would be the state of New York, right? But because this happened in righteous Indian country, is what we call air quotes, <laughs> um, that would be the federal jurisdiction. Renee, if folks have questions about this or if this has piqued their interest, because I think it's it's such an, it, it, it's 
it's important to understand. It's hard to understand. I, I mean, we I've been in this field and I've been working with you for three years and I'm still struggling to understand every day, but where can they go? Or is there a way to understand this better? Are there resources available to folks? So if you're an attorney, um, you know, there are a lot of online courses that you can look at. You can also go to, um, let's see, I know my tribe post a lot of things about McGirt. They do FAQs and stuff. Um, they uh, post, you know, a lot of things about jurisdiction. Um, you can Google Indian Country Jurisdiction. I believe that um, AUSA Arvo Mikkonen out of the Western District of Oklahoma, he um, updated a really fancy, cool chart. Um, and I think it includes the new VAWA, um, the new VAWA things that are what we call Oliphant fixes, um, because it's going to give tribes um, jurisdiction over non-offenders under different uh, crimes. One of the things that I, th I think would be really interesting to the audience to know is that even though tribes have jurisdiction over some of these crimes, here's the really crazy thing. Um, we're limited by Congress to our punishment. So if we tried somebody for murder, if we have murder in our tribal codes, um, we would only be able to charge them for like three years and like a $5,000 fine. Um, because the federal government doesn't allow us to have, um, they pretty much set our sentencing guidelines for us. So that's another really interesting thing that a lot of people don't don't realize. Um, so they're like, well, the tribe can, you know, prosecute somebody. Yeah, but we can only prosecute them for a minimal amount of time. And most of our tribes don't have jails. Um, so we have to contract with state or county jails. And that expense is unbelievably outrageous. I think the important part, the very important part that we should not leave out, there are 574 tribes nationwide that are federally recognized. That means there are a lot of different cultural components, as you've said, but if somebody in one of those tribes has been a victim of crime, not just institutional abuse or institutional sexual abuse, but of any type of crime, what is the best way for them to seek services? <laughs> the tribal resource tool obviously at the national center for victims of crime tribalresourcetool.org we're extremely proud of that resource and it is not it the name is a little misleading so it's not all tribal resources it is resources for american indian alaska native victims and survivors and you can we have close to a thousand resources you can jump in there and you can google your area you can uh, look at the time uh, crime type you can search the map you know within a certain radius there's also like strong hearts native helpline um, there are we have the uh, help me out Renee <laughs> we have our uh, our hotline our, oh our um, hotline victim yes <laughs> we have our victim connect hotline that um, you know collaboratively works with our tribal resource tool um, but generally Indian people know what resources are available to them in their communities. Um, all right. Well, I think that is about all the time we have for today. I want to thank Renee for joining us and for sharing a lot of this that I think is going to be new for most of our listeners. Um, Renee, any last thoughts you want to offer up to our audience? 
No, I would just say Mado, which is thank you in my language. And I could see this maybe piquing folks interested in more Indian country videos. And we have tons of friends who are experts that um, I'm sure would be glad to jump on a podcast. So, and as always, if you have any questions, you can reach us and find our contact information at victimsofcrime.org. Thanks so much for listening. Please join us next week. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. If you have questions about your rights after what you just heard, please visit us at victimsofcrime.org. This podcast was created by the National Center for Victims of Crime in partnership with our center and affiliate, the National Crime Victim Bar Association, which is the nation's first professional association of attorneys and expert witnesses dedicating to helping victims seek justice through the civil system. If you need a civil attorney, you can request one at victimbar.org. Parallel Justice is hosted by Renee Williams, edited by Cameron Saylor, and produced by Deidre Watford. Thank you again for joining us. Please tune in next week.